Chapter Seven A of Roderick Hudson by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven, Saint Cecilia's. Rowland went off into the Colosseum. He never wearied of it. One morning, about a month after his return from Frascati, as he was strolling across the vast arena, he observed a young woman seated on one of the fragments of stone which are ranged along the line of the ancient parapet. It seemed to him that he had seen her before, but he was unable to localize her face. Passing her again, he perceived that one of the little red-legged French soldiers at that time on guard there had approached her and was gallantly making himself agreeable. She smiled brilliantly, and Roland recognized the smile, it had always pleased him, of a certain comely Assunta, who sometimes opened the door for Mrs. Light's visitors. He wondered what she was doing alone in the Colosseum, and conjectured that Assunta had admirers as well as her young mistress, but that being without the same domiciliary conveniences, she was using this massive heritage of her Latin ancestors as a boudoir. In other words, she had an appointment with her lover, who had better, from present appearances, be punctual. It was a long time since Roland had ascended to the ruinous upper tiers of the great circus, and as the day was radiant and the distant views promised to be particularly clear, he determined to give himself the pleasure. The custodian unlocked the great wooden wicket, and he climbed through the winding shafts where the eager Roman crowds had billowed and trampled, not pausing till he reached the highest accessible point of the ruin. The views were as fine as he had supposed. The lights on the Sabine mountains had never been more lovely. He gazed to his satisfaction and retraced his steps. In a moment he paused again on an abutment somewhat lower, from which the glance dropped dizzily into the interior. There are chance and fractuosities of ruin in the upper portions of the Colosseum, which offer a very fair imitation of the rugged face of an alpine cliff. In those days a multitude of delicate flowers and sprays of wild herbage had found a friendly soil in the hoary crevices, and they bloomed and nodded amid the antique masonry as freely as they would have done in the virgin rock. Roland was turning away when he heard a sound of voices rising up from below. He had but to step slightly forward to find himself overlooking two persons, who had seated themselves on a narrow ledge in a sunny corner. They had apparently had an eye to extreme privacy, but they had not observed that their position was commanded by Roland's standpoint. One of these airy adventurers was a lady, thickly veiled, so that even if he had not been standing directly above her, Roland could not have seen her face. The other was a young man whose face was also invisible, but who, as Roland stood there, gave a toss of his clustering locks, which were equivalent to the signature, Roderick Hudson. A moment's reflection hereupon satisfied him of the identity of the lady. He had been unjust to poor Assunta, sitting patient in the gloomy arena. She had not come on her own errand. Roland's discoveries made him hesitate. Should he retire as noiselessly as possible, or should he call out a friendly good morning? While he was debating the question, he found himself distinctly hearing his friend's words. They were of such a nature as to make him unwilling to retreat, and yet to make it awkward to be discovered in a position where it would be apparent that he had heard them. "'If what you say is true,' said Christina, with her usual soft deliberateness, it made her words rise with peculiar distinctiveness to Roland's ear, "'you are simply weak. I am sorry. 
I hoped, I really believed you were not. No, I am not weak, answered Roderick with vehemence. I maintain that I am not weak. I am incomplete, perhaps, but I can't help that. Weakness is a man's own fault. Incomplete, then, said Christina with a laugh. It's the same thing, so long as it keeps you from splendid achievement. Is it written, then, that I shall really never know what I have so often dreamed of? What have you dreamed of? A man whom I can perfectly respect, cried the young girl, with a sudden flame. A man, at least, whom I can unrestrictedly admire. I meet one, as I have met more than one before, whom I fondly believe to be cast in a larger mould than most of the vile human breed, to be large in character, great in talent, strong in will. In such a man as that, I say, one's weary imagination at last may rest, or it may wander if it will, yet never need to wander far from the deeps where one's heart is anchored. When I first knew you, I gave no sign, but you had struck me. I observed you, as women observe, and I fancied you had the sacred fire. "'Before heaven I believe I have!' cried Roderick. "'Ah, but so little. It flickers and trembles and sputters. It goes out, you tell me, for whole weeks together. From your own account it's ten to one that in the long run you're a failure.' "'I say those things sometimes myself, but when I hear you say them they make me feel as if I could work twenty years at a sitting on purpose to refute you.' "'Ah, but the man who is strong with what I call strength,' Christina replied, "'would neither rise nor fall by anything I could say. "'I am a poor, weak woman. "'I have no strength myself, and I can give no strength. "'I am a miserable medley of vanity and folly. "'I am silly, I am ignorant, I am affected, I am false. "'I am the fruit of a horrible education, sown on a worthless soil.' I am all that, and yet I believe I have one merit. I should know a great character when I saw it, and I should delight in it with a generosity which would do something toward the remission of my sins. For a man who should really give me a certain feeling, which I have never had, but which I should know when it came, I would send Prince Casamassima and his millions to perdition. I don't know what you think of me for saying all this. I suppose we have not climbed up here under the skies to play propriety. Why have you been at such pains to assure me, after all, that you are a little man, and not a great one, a weak one, and not a strong? I innocently imagined that your eyes declared you were strong. But your voice condemns you. I always wondered at it. It's not the voice of a conqueror. Give me something to conquer, cried Roderick, and when I say that I thank you from my soul, my voice, whatever you think of it, shall speak the truth. Christina for a moment said nothing. Roland was too interested to think of moving. "'You pretend to such devotion,' she went on, "'and yet I am sure you have never really chosen between me and that person in America.' "'Do me the favour not to speak of her,' said Roderick imploringly. "'Why not? I can say no ill of her, and I think all kinds of good. I am certain she is a far better girl than I, and far more likely to make you happy.' This is happiness, this present palpable moment, said Roderick, though you have such a genius for saying the things that torture me. It's greater happiness than you deserve, then. You have never chosen, I say. You have been afraid to choose. You have never really faced the fact that you are false, that you have broken your faith. You have never looked at it and seen that it was hideous, and yet said, No matter, I'll brave the penalty, I'll bear the shame. 
You have closed your eyes, you have tried to stifle remembrance, to persuade yourself that you were not behaving as badly as you seemed to be, and there would be some way, after all, of compassing bliss and yet escaping trouble. You have faltered and drifted, you have gone on from accident to accident, and I am sure that at this present moment you can't tell what it is you really desire. Roderick was sitting with his knees drawn up and bent, and his hands clasped around his legs. He bent his head and rested his forehead on his knees. Christina went on with a sort of infernal calmness. I believe that really you don't greatly care for your friend in America, any more than you do for me. You are one of the men who care only for themselves, and for what they can make of themselves. That's very well when they can make something great, and I could interest myself in a man of extraordinary power, who should wish to turn all his passions to account. But if the power should turn out to be, after all, rather ordinary? Fancy feeling oneself ground in the mill of a third-rate talent. If you have doubts about yourself, I can't reassure you. I have too many doubts myself about everything in this weary world. You have gone up like a rocket in your profession, they tell me. Are you going to come down like the stick? I don't pretend to know. I repeat frankly what I have said before, that all modern sculpture seems to me weak, and that the only things I care for are some of the most battered of the antiques of the Vatican. No, no, I can't reassure you. And when you tell me, with a confidence in my discretion, of which certainly I am duly sensible, that at times you feel terribly small, why, I can only answer, Ah, then, my poor friend, I am afraid you are small. The language I should like to hear from a certain person would be the language of absolute decision. Roderick raised his head, but he said nothing. He seemed to be exchanging a long glance with his companion. The result of it was to make him fling himself back with an inarticulate murmur. Roland, admonished by the silence, was on the point of turning away, but he was arrested by a gesture of the young girl. She pointed for a moment into the blue air. Roderick followed the direction of her gesture. "'Is that little flower we see outlined against that dark niche?' she asked, as intensely blue as it looks through my veil. She spoke, apparently, with the amiable design of directing the conversation into a less painful channel. Roland, from where he stood, could see the flower she meant, a delicate plant of radiant hue, which sprouted from the top of an immense fragment of wall some twenty feet from Christina's place. Roderick turned his head and looked at it without answering. At last, glancing round, "'Put up your veil,' he said. Christina complied. "'Does it look as blue now?' he asked. "'Ah, oh, what a lovely color! she murmured, leaning her head on one side. "'Would you like to have it?' She stared a moment and then broke into a light laugh. "'Would you like to have it?' he repeated in a ringing voice. "'Don't look as if you would eat me up,' she answered. "'It's harmless if I say yes.' Roderick rose to his feet and stood looking at the little flower. It was separated from the ledge on which he stood by a rugged surface of vertical wall, which dropped straight into the dusky vaults behind the arena. Suddenly he took off his hat and flung it behind him. Christina then sprang to her feet. "'I will bring it you,' he said. She seized his arm. "'Are you crazy? Do you mean to kill yourself?' "'I shall not kill myself. Sit down.' "'Excuse me, not till you do.' And she grasped his arm with both hands. 
Roderick shook her off and pointed with a violent gesture to her former place. "'Go there!' he cried fiercely. "'You can never, never,' she murmured beseechingly, clasping her hands. "'I implore you!' Roderick turned and looked at her, and then in a voice which Roland had never heard him use, a voice almost thunderous, a voice which awakened the echoes of the mighty ruin, he repeated, "'Sit down!' She hesitated a moment, and then she dropped on the ground, and buried her face in her hands. Roland had seen all this, and he saw more. He saw Roderick clasp in his left arm the jagged corner of the vertical partition along which he proposed to pursue his crazy journey, stretch out his leg, and feel for a resting place for his foot. Roland had measured with a glance the possibility of his sustaining himself, and pronounced it absolutely nil. The wall was garnished with a series of narrow projections, the remains, apparently, of a brick cornice supporting the arch of a vault, which had long since collapsed. It was by lodging his toes on these loose brackets, and grasping with his hands at certain mouldering protuberances on a level with his head, that Roderick intended to proceed. The relics of the cornice were utterly worthless as a support. Roland had observed this, and yet for a moment he had hesitated. If the thing were possible, he felt a sudden admiring glee at the thought of Roderick's doing it. It would be finely done, it would be gallant, it would have a sort of masculine eloquence as an answer to Christina's sinister persiflage. But it was not possible. Roland left his place with a bound and scrambled down some neighboring steps, and the next moment a stronger pair of hands than Christina's were laid upon Roderick's shoulder. He turned, staring, pale and angry. Christina rose, pale and staring, too, but beautiful in her wonder and alarm. "'My dear Roderick,' said Roland, "'I am only preventing you from doing a very foolish thing. That's an exploit for spiders, not for young sculptors of promise.' Roderick wiped his forehead, looked back at the wall, and then closed his eyes as if with a spasm of retarded dizziness. "'I won't resist you,' he said. But I have made you obey, he added, turning to Christina. Am I weak now? She had recovered her composure. She looked straight past him and addressed Roland. Be so good as to show me the way out of this horrible place. He helped her back into the corridor. Roderick followed after a short interval. Of course, as they were descending the steps, came questions for Roland to answer, and more or less surprise. Where had he come from? How happened he to have appeared at just that moment? Roland answered that he had been rambling overhead, and that looking out of an aperture he had seen a gentleman preparing to undertake a preposterous gymnastic feat, and a lady swooning away in consequence. Interference seemed justifiable, and he had made it as prompt as possible. Roderick was far from hanging his head, like a man who has been caught in the perpetration of an extravagant folly. But if he held it more erect than usual, Roland believed that this was much less because he had made a show of personal daring, than because he had triumphantly proved to Christina that like a certain person she had dreamed of, he too could speak the language of decision. Christina descended to the arena in silence, apparently occupied with her own thoughts. She betrayed no sense of the privacy of her interview with Roderick needing an explanation. Roland had seen stranger things in New York. The only evidence of her recent agitation was that on being joined by her maid, she declared that she was unable to walk home, she must have a carriage. 
A fiacre was found resting in the shadow of the Arch of Constantine, and Roland suspected that after she had got into it she disburdened herself, under her veil, of a few natural tears. Roland had played eavesdropper to so good a purpose that he might justly have omitted the ceremony of denouncing himself to Roderick. He preferred, however, to let him know that he had overheard a portion of his talk with Christina. "'Of course it seems to you,' Roderick had said, "'a proof that I am utterly infatuated.' "'Miss Light seemed to me to know very well how far she could go,' Roland answered. "'She was twisting you round her finger. I don't think she exactly meant to defy you, but your crazy pursuit of that flower was a proof that she could go all lengths in the way of making a fool of you.' "'Yes,' said Roderick meditatively, "'she is making a fool of me.' "'And what do you expect to come of it?' "'Nothing good,' and Roderick put his hands into his pockets, and looked as if he had announced the most colourless fact in the world. "'And in the light of your late interview, what do you make of your young lady?' "'If I could tell you that, it would be plain sailing, but she'll not tell me again I am weak.' "'Are you very sure you are not weak?' I may be, but she shall never know it. Roland said no more until they reached the Corso, when he asked his companion whether he was going to his studio. Roderick started out of a reverie and passed his hands over his eyes. Oh, no, I can't settle down to work after such a scene as that. I was not afraid of breaking my neck then, but I feel all in a tremor now. I will go, I will go and sit in the sun on the Pincho. "'Promise me this first, said Roland, very solemnly, "'that the next time you meet Miss Light "'it shall be on the earth and not in the air.' "'Since his return from Frascati, "'Roderick had been working doggedly "'at the statue ordered by Mr. Leavenworth. "'To Roland's eye he had made a very fair beginning, "'but he had himself insisted from the first "'that he liked neither his subject nor his patron, "'and that it was impossible to feel "'any warmth of interest in a work which was to be incorporated into the ponderous personality of Mr. Leavenworth. It was all against the grain. He wrought without love. Nevertheless, after a fashion he wrought, and the figure grew beneath his hands. Miss Blanchard's friend was ordering works of art on every side, and his purveyors were in many cases persons whom Roderick declared it was infamy to be paired with. There had been grand tailors, he said, who declined to make you a coat unless you got the hat you were to wear with it from an artist of their own choosing. It seemed to him he had an equal right to exact that his statue should not form part of the same system of ornament as the Pearl of Perugia, a picture by an American confrere, who had, in Mr. Leavenworth's opinion, a prodigious eye for colour. As a customer, Mr. Leavenworth used to drop into Roderick's studio, to see how things were getting on, and give a friendly hint or so. He would seat himself squarely, plant his gold-top cane between his legs, which he held very much apart, rest his large white hands on the head, and enunciate the principles of spiritual art as he hoisted them one by one, as you might say, out of the depths of his moral consciousness. His benignant and imperturbable pomposity gave Roderick the sense of suffocating beneath a large fluffy bolster, and the worst of the matter was that the good gentleman's placid vanity had an integument whose toughness no sarcastic shaft could pierce. 
Roderick admitted that in thinking over the tribulations of struggling genius, the danger of dying of over-patronage had never occurred to him. The deterring effect of the episode of the Colosseum was apparently of long continuance. If Roderick's nerves had been shaken, his hand needed time to recover its steadiness. He cultivated composure upon principles of his own, by frequenting entertainments from which he returned at four o'clock in the morning, and lapsing into habits which might fairly be called irregular. He had hitherto made few friends among the artistic fraternity, chiefly because he had taken no trouble about it, and there was in his demeanour an elastic independence of the favour of his fellow-mortals, which made social advances on his own part peculiarly necessary. Rowland had told him more than once that he ought to fraternise a trifle more with the other artists, and he had always answered that he had not the smallest objection to fraternising, let them come. But they came on rare occasions, and Roderick was not punctilious about returning their visits. He declared there was not one of them whose works gave him the smallest desire to make acquaintance with the insides of their heads. For Gloriani he professed a superb contempt, and having been once to look at his wares, never crossed his threshold again. The only one of the fraternity, for whom by his own admission he cared a straw, was little Singleton, but he expressed his regard only in a kind of sublime hilarity whenever he encountered this humble genius, and quite forgot his existence in the intervals. He had never been to see him, but Singleton edged his way, from time to time, timidly, into Roderick's studio, and agreed with characteristic modesty that brilliant fellows like the sculptor might consent to receive homage, but could hardly be expected to render it. Roderick never exactly accepted homage, and apparently did not quite observe whether poor Singleton spoke in admiration or in blame. Roderick's taste as to companions was singularly capricious. There were very good fellows who were disposed to cultivate him, who bored him to death and there were others, in whom even Rowland's good nature was unable to discover a pretext for tolerance, in whom he appeared to find the highest social qualities. He used to give the most fantastic reasons for his likes and dislikes. He would declare he couldn't speak a civil word to a man who brushed his hair in a certain fashion, and he would explain his unaccountable fancy for an individual of imperceptible merit by telling you that he had an ancestor who in the thirteenth century had walled up his wife alive. I like to talk to a man whose ancestor has walled up his wife alive, he would say. You may not see the fun of it, and think poor P is a very dull fellow. It's very possible. I don't ask you to admire him. But for reasons of my own, I like to have him about. The old fellow left her for three days with her face uncovered, and placed a long mirror opposite to her, so that she could see, as he said, if her gown was a fit. His relish for an odd flavour in his friends had led him to make the acquaintance of a number of people outside of Rowland's well-ordered circle, and he made no secret of their being very queer fish. He formed an intimacy, among others, with a crazy fellow, who had come to Rome as an emissary of one of the Central American republics, to drive some ecclesiastical bargain with the papal government. The Pope had given him the cold shoulder, but since he had not prospered as a diplomatist, he had sought compensation as a man of the world, and his great flamboyant curricle and negro lackeys were for several weeks one of the striking ornaments of the pension. 
He spoke a queer jargon of Italian, Spanish, French, and English, humorously relieved with scraps of ecclesiastical Latin, and to those who inquired of Roderick what he found to interest him in such a fantastic jackanapes, the latter would reply, looking at his interlocutor with his lucid blue eyes, that it was worth any sacrifice to hear him talk nonsense. The two had gone together one night to a ball given by a lady of some renown in the Spanish colony, and very late, on his way home, Roderick came up to Roland's rooms, in whose windows he had seen a light. Roland was going to bed, but Roderick flung himself into an armchair and chattered for an hour. The friends of the Costa Rican envoy were as amusing as himself, and in very much the same line. The mistress of the house had worn a yellow satin dress and gold heels to her slippers, and at the close of the entertainment had sent for a pair of castanets, tucked up her petticoats, and danced to fandango, while the gentlemen sat cross-legged on the floor. It was awfully low, Roderick said. All of a sudden I perceived it and bolted. Nothing of that kind ever amuses me to the end. Before it's half over, it bores me to death. It makes me sick. Hang it, why can't a poor fellow enjoy things in peace? My illusions are all broken-winded. They won't carry me twenty paces. I can't laugh and forget. My laugh dies away before it begins. Your friend Stondahl writes on his book-covers—I never got farther—that he has seen too early in life la beauté parfaite. I don't know how early he saw it. I saw it before I was born, in another state of being. I can't describe it positively. I can only say I don't find it anywhere now not at the bottom of champagne-glasses, not, strange as it may seem, in that extra half-yard or so of shoulder that some women have their ball-dresses cut to expose. I don't find it at merry supper-tables, where half a dozen ugly men with pomatumed heads are rapidly growing uglier still with heat and wine, not when I come away and walk through these squalid black streets, and go out into the forum and see a few old battered stone posts standing there like gnawed bones stuck into the earth. Everything is mean and dusky and shabby, and the men and women who make up this so-called brilliant society are the meanest and shabbiest of all. They have no real spontaneity. They are all cowards and popinjays. They have no more dignity than so many grasshoppers. Nothing is good but one and he jumped up and stood looking at one of his statues, which shone vaguely across the room in the dim lamplight. "'Yes, do tell us,' said Roland, "'what to hold on by?' "'Those things of mine were tolerably good,' he answered, "'but my idea was better, and that's what I mean.' Roland said nothing. He was willing to wait for Roderick to complete the circle of his metamorphoses, but he had no desire to officiate his chorus to the play. If Roderick chose to fish in troubled waters, he must land his prizes himself. "'You think I'm an impudent humbug,' the latter said at last, "'coming up to moralize at this hour of the night. You think I want to throw dust into your eyes, to put you off the scent. That's your eminently rational view of the case.' "'Excuse me from taking any view at all,' said Roland. "'You have given me up, then?' "'No, I have merely suspended judgment. I am waiting.' You have ceased, then, positively to believe in me? Roland made an angry gesture. Oh, cruel boy, when you have hit your mark and made people care for you, you shouldn't twist your weapon about at that rate in their vitals. Allow me to say I am sleepy. Good night. Some days afterward it happened that Roland, 
on a long afternoon's ramble, took his way through one of the quiet corners of the Trastevere. He was particularly fond of this part of Rome, though we could hardly have expressed the charm he found in it. As you pass away from the dusky, swarming purlieus of the ghetto, you emerge into a region of empty, soundless, grass-grown lanes and alleys, where the shabby houses seem mouldering away in disuse, and yet your footstep brings figures of startling Roman type to the doorways. There are a few monuments here, but no part of Rome seemed more historic, in the sense of being weighted with a crushing past, blighted with the melancholy of things that had had their day. When the yellow afternoon sunshine slept on the sallow, battered walls, and lengthened the shadows in the grassy courtyards of small, closed churches, the place acquired a strange fascination. The church of St. Cecilia has one of these sunny, waste-looking courts. The edifice seems abandoned to silence and the charity of chance devotion. Roland never passed it without going in, and he was generally the only visitor. He entered it now, but found that two persons had preceded him. Both were women. One was at her prayers at one of the side altars, the other was seated against a column at the upper end of the nave. Roland walked to the altar, and paid, in a momentary glance at the clever statue of the saint in death, in the niche beneath it, the usual tribute to the charm of polished ingenuity. As he turned away he looked at the person seated, and recognized Christina Light. Seeing that she had perceived him, he advanced to speak to her. She was sitting in a listless attitude with her hands in her lap. She seemed to be tired. She was dressed simply as if for walking and escaping observation. When he had greeted her, he glanced back at her companion, and recognized the faithful Asunta. Christina smiled. "'Are you looking for Mr. Hudson? He is not here, I am happy to say.' "'But you,' he asked, this is a strange place to find you. Not at all. People call me a strange girl, and I might as well have the comfort of it. I came to take a walk. That, by the way, is part of my strangeness. I can't loll all the morning on a sofa and all the afternoon in a carriage. I get horribly restless. I must move. I must do something and see something. Mamma suggests a cup of tea. Meanwhile, I put on an old dress and half a dozen veils. I take Asunta under my arm, and we start on a pedestrian tour. It's a bore that I can't take the poodle, but he attracts attention. We trudge about everywhere. There's nothing I like so much. I hope you will congratulate me on the simplicity of my tastes. I congratulate you on your wisdom. To live in Rome and not to walk would, I think, be poor pleasure. But you are terribly far from home, and I am afraid you are tired. A little, enough to sit here a while. Might I offer you my company while you rest? If you will promise to amuse me, I am in dismal spirits. Roland said he would do what he could, and brought a chair and placed it near her. He was not in love with her. He disapproved of her. He mistrusted her. And yet he felt it a kind of privilege to watch her, and he found a peculiar excitement in talking to her. The background of her nature, as he would have called it, was large and mysterious, and it emitted strange, fantastic gleams and flashes. Watching for these rather quickened one's pulses. Moreover, it was not a disadvantage to talk to a girl, who made one keep guard on one's composure. It diminished one's chronic liability to utter something less than revised wisdom. Asunta had risen from her prayers, and as he took his place was coming back to her mistress. But Christina motioned her away. 
No, no, while you are about it, say a few dozen more, she said. Pray for me, she added in English. Pray, I say nothing silly. She has been at it half an hour. I envy her capacity. Have you never felt in any degree, Roland asked, the fascination of Catholicism? Yes, I have been through that, too. There was a time when I wanted immensely to be a nun. It was not a laughing matter. It was when I was about sixteen years old. I read The Imitation and The Life of St. Catherine. I fully believed in the miracles of the saints, and I was dying to have one of my own. The least little accident that could have been twisted into a miracle would have carried me straight into the bosom of the church. I had the real religious passion. It has passed away, and as I sat here just now, I was wondering what has become of it. End of chapter 7, part A